0: And welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the studio, joined by Mike as normal, and by our guest, second-time guest now, Dr. Martin Moldenhauer, from the English uh, English department here at the college. uh, And soon to be retired. Sadly, in his last year with us. So we will be missing him soon. But we are here in the studio, and we're going to be recording today on Mark Twain and wherever things go from that. Um, But a name that's familiar to people, and I'm guessing a lot of you listening probably had to read some Twain at some point, whether it be middle school or high school, so we will be making our way to discussing Mark Twain. Um, Just as a reminder, we are part of the 1517 Podcasting Network. encourage you to go to 1517.org and check out all the stuff they're doing from uh, written content, Uh, to audio content, to video content, free classes as well. So a lot you can find there. Here We Still Stand conference is coming up. It may be sold out at this point. Last I heard there were a few tickets available. Uh, Mike and I will be live recording out there in San Diego. And then I will be speaking for a breakout session um, but lest I make the intro too long, Mike, why don't you go ahead and get us our disclaimer and we'll make our way into the free-for-all.
1: This show doesn't speak for our churches, or church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism. Because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you are just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. Back for our free for all, since we have Marty here with us, um, a pretty well-read individual, we thought our free for all today would be: if you could choose one and only one um, publication um, that you could subscribe to, I we what said would subscription. it would be—subscription, a publication that you su- would subscribe I was going to say Netflix,
0: to. Now I can't say Netflix.
1: Yeah, well, that was dumb. That's not. That was not. I know it was going to be a joke, but. Well, now it's over. I know. Okay, so um, written publication, but it could be online, I suppose. Um, so we're talking newspaper, we're talking magazine, A periodical, we're talking journal, or journal, something yeah. like that. Like, if you could only have one, what would it be? So, Wade, we're going to start with you. What would it be?
0: Um, I would. I, as far as favorite um, subscription, probably as far as the one I enjoy the most, would probably be. We talked about this a couple episodes, but probably The Atlantic. I enjoy The Atlantic, a lot of the articles, and there's a variety in there. But the more I thought about it, I thought maybe daily would be the way to go because I'd want to get news, right? So if we're including newspapers in this as a subscription, um, although I suppose I could get news from other uh, type of mediums, um, I would probably go New York Times or Wall Street Journal, and I would say uh, probably
2: New York Times. New York Times. That's just a print newspaper.
0: Yeah, but I get it. I get it online through the. We get the educators discount, so no, I get the no pictures, Wade. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I tend to, I get the Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, and I think the one I tend to probably enjoy the most because of the variety of stuff it covers would probably be the Times, because the Wall Street Journal I just end up skipping past all the business stuff and the Post. Is depressing with the politics. Yeah,
1: so. I you know. I used to get the Economist, but I think I got bored with the. It, it, well, it's more business stuff right. than that. And and I did like the. What I liked about the Economist is that they broke it up, broke the world up in regions. So tell me something quickly about Asia. Tell me something quickly about the continent, yeah. about England or whatever. But I kind of, I don't know. It just it, the writing was not engaging like the Atlantic or maybe the New York Times. Yeah. Um,
0: if I had to go magazine and be Atlantic, and I think if I had to go journal, as much as I would say Logia, since I'm an editor for them, I would probably go uh, Lutheran Quarterly. You
1: know what I used to like a lot, and me and I've heard they've gotten better, so maybe I should pick it up again as first things.
0: Yeah, I'm not a big fan.
1: You're not a big fan. I think they've you gone, would have they've been. They've
0: gone full culture war. Back in the day, I would have been. Back in the day, put, yeah. you would have
1: been. And I don't know this for sure, but maybe have gotten a little bit better, but you're thinking not.
0: I think they've gone full culture war.
1: Yeah. A little bit too much. Yeah. Um, but real thoughtful stuff with Newhouse. I mean, that I yeah. think that was, I used to, for a while, get like every Lutheran thing. Like that was, I'm going to be a good Lutheran pastor and know what's going on. So like Lutheran Forum, I used to enjoy quite a bit has gotten better, I think, mm-hmm. I mean, um, but Logia was definitely one that I um, sharpened some stuff on early as a pastor and as a seminarian college student. And that's a Lutheran theological, yeah, Lutheran theological journal. Yeah, Lutheran theological
0: journal. That'd to, be a good question, for some, which one, if you could only have the archives of it, that would be a fun one sometime too.
1: I'd have to go with Logia, because I think you'd get more than Lutheran quarterly, and it would be a little bit more widespread. Probably. A little more variety. And they are shorter articles.
0: Yeah. But <laughs> well, we're both going in discipline now. So yeah. I know,
1: that's true. Um, Boy, that's just a tough one. I'm um, not really settled on one. I mean, you and I both like The Atlantic because I like the, lo- the it's not long form, but there's more long form essays in there than mm-hmm. there are other journals. And mm-hmm. I've even noticed like CNN's trying to do that a little bit more, like, or even like ESPN a little bit more like long forms which I really enjoy. I'd rather yep. have something telling the, the, the complete story than just something else. You know I've been disappointed in is uh, the web presence of NPR. I don't think they have. I, I think I expected more from them. The radio's yeah. better than that. So I'm going to punt on this. I really don't know. I had to think about that. I just don't want to say Atlantic because you said it.
0: But if I hadn't said it, you would have said it? I'll w- take I, it, I'll would, give it to you because no, then you could share it with me, and I share the time. No, with you. I wouldn't
2: because I
1: know that we we've both been talking about it too much on
0: whatever. All right. Well, Marty, what about you? Well,
2: uh, let me comment on the Atlantic. It, it used to be called the Atlantic Monthly, of course, and it was founded in the Harvard area in 1850. William Dean Howells, hmm. and uh, that fits right into my literature interest. But I would choose the Smithsonian. I like. Glossy color photos and yeah. pictures, and uh-huh. and a little more to look at there. And it's our national archive magazine, so occasionally it has literature things and biographical things, and of course discoveries and travel and all of those things. That, that is a good choice. That make thanks. Uh, that they probably would be. Me on.
1: I know my grandfather uh, gave each of his children for many years a National Geographic subscription every year. So I grew up with some, not a little bit different. But something similar where it's, it's wide variety balances it out with science. I mean, I think the Atlantic that shows our interest, right? Probably. A little bit more politics, mm-hmm. a little bit more instead of probably should be concerned with science. And you don't even care about art. Do you? Have you ever even been into an art museum?
0: I've been to art museums. I just <laughs> I like specific periods, and I tend to like religious art. You know, I, that's, right.
1: that's it. So to I'm gonna get. get I'm gonna start paying attention to the Smithsonian now.
2: And I would also include the Forward in Christ, although it's it's a pluralistic magazine in terms of audience. It's for our whole Wisconsin Synod, mm-hmm. uh, with, but the articles are written by former students of mine, which I really enjoy. As you know, I taught at Northwestern Prep for many years, and many of those youngsters, young men, are now pastors, theologians, mm-hmm. professors, seminary presidents, and they write articles for the forward in Christ, and I enjoy reading those articles yeah, so, and remembering those guys. So
1: Northwestern Prep was a, a high school that prepped a lot of uh men to be or I should say teenagers to be pastors in our synod. To go and on so, yeah, so college. you have and you st- were eighty three to
2: you mean when I taught yeah, there? Yeah, when you taught there. I taught there from 73 to 75 oh, okay. as a young, young instructor. And then I taught there again from 83 to 89. And then uh, took a year and a half off to do my residency on my doctorate. Then I came back in 90 and went till 97 uh, when I Assume my duties here at the college. The uh,
0: my wife's class just wore you
2: out, huh? I taught your wife. I did. Indeed. It would have ninety six. She graduated. I so did it. indeed.
1: <laughs> so you, so the, I, I, never thought about that. Like you, when you read something like that, there's, uh, you probably look and see who the authors are before you even look at the I title. I do. Yeah. I actually do, <laughs> and, and <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> well, that's kind of a cool thing to look back on uh-huh. I do that. So yeah, um, anything else you want to talk about?
0: No, I was just thinking about the long form journalism thing, and with ESPN, they're kind of doing that with the what do they call it? The sixty, the something, and sixty or these specials they've been doing. Well, it's the,
1: the 30, 30 <laughs> for thirty, but then also, yeah, there was
0: something else. The too. college football ones have been pretty cool, yeah. like the history of it and how the game developed and the rivalry. So I think even with video content, that there's maybe long form is making a making a comeback.
1: I you know I I I I hope so. I hope so did you ever I mean, what do you think about journalism? I mean, did you ever teach journalism in high school or college or I mean you, I know you did sure. the, like high school newspaper kind of thing yeah
2: facets facets of it. I never had a course exactly called journalism, but I've always been interested in publications writing editorial work. I did serve you you mentioned you you're the editor of a current magazine. I did serve as the proofreader of the old forward and christ uh, even its predecessor and uh, that was enjoyable where I'd, I'd go through the text with a fine tooth comb and help sort mm-hmm. things out grammatically and structurally and mm-hmm. and that's probably my only experience as a editor publicist
0: i do think it's interesting just and i don't want to go too long on this but um and marty you probably have better insight and you mentioned with the atlantic for instance, but. Atlantic Harper's other, I mean, there's a lot of authors that got their start writing essays for magazines like that, and I think that has to be harder for people today to kind of get their name out there and get known, and I think it's its kind of hurt probably um, short fiction or even uh, non-fiction essays that people whose gifts are really there, the I mean, the readership just isn't what it is, and I mean, I think even of how many novels weren't serialized, you know, and would come out in these things, and I'm trying to think of what really is out there anymore for authors to kind of get their start in that way, and I don't think it is much, huh?
2: I, I would agree. It's It was the way. At one point in my American literature class, I teach nine consecutive authors, all who began their careers in newspaper work. So it, it was the way that authors were recognized, published, and then hone Honed their skills, yeah. yeah. And and uh, serialized books and chapter by chapter but today i don't i don't think that would be the case anymore newspapers are on the wane uh, of course and it's really hard to
0: do that in a digital format i mean to have yeah. people commit to something to that that is an interesting shift i guess that's taken place and I, I it probably shows itself in the you know the kind of maybe what becomes popular now and and the kind of market you're able to reach with with
2: With works. I think they're more self published authors today, too. Mm -hmm. It's not too hard to grab yourself a manuscript and some kind of a publishing aspect and Mm -hmm. put your books out there.
0: It's been democratized. (laughs) I I do think you lose something with that, with the, um, you know, having skilled editors who can recognize talent and also, um, you know, work with someone to kind of uh, mold their. their work to the medium or to the the format in the audience um, I mean I, I, we probably lose something in our literacy and our writing by not having that anymore it uh, you know we always think of the writers but more and more and you look back and you go a lot of them really had solid relationships with very gifted editors and well and uh, you know I, I just there's there's probably not nearly as much of that influence anymore you know this stuff just it's there and it's out and the need to get it out quickly probably too so
1: no but i think to the original point that seeing more and more of that even in something like i don't want to say trivial but it's trivial sports right that there are these long long form kind of things that do you know for mark twain uh you know a nice segue is he did that too right and then there would be stories that would be uh like said serialized and and they can then turn into Uh a book not just the author's skill
0: but well, shoot! Even Kierkegaard, actual, yeah. I mean, was writing for newspapers in in Copenhagen, you know. And yeah.
1: I always wanted to be a journalist. I don't think I would have the chops for it, but
0: I wouldn't. I don't know that I would have been a good journalist. But I, uh, I would have liked doing like a, where David Foster Wallace did stuff, and you kind of just write about whatever you want. You use it as a springboard. <laughs> but that's someone else who got known for writing his essays, and then uh, his you mentioned novels came later.
2: Twain, and of course, that's my topic to sit here, but. The book Prince and the Pauper was written chapter by chapter for Twain to read to his three daughters. Oh, really? Yeah, and then it eventually morphed into a, a book. But that's what he did it for, is to each week read a new chapter, and he'd ro- he wrote a chapter, and then huh. read it to them. Hmm. The Prince and the Pauper is that little idealization of two boys who look alike, and one is the heir apparent to the throne, and another is a beggar boy in the streets, and mm-hmm. they switch places. Huh. So, yeah.
0: That would be maybe a a good topic for an episode in and of itself. Would be kind of the the history of of print and how people how people consumed media, and then how um, you know that has shifted and how it's consumed today. Because I, I think part of it with um, you know long form stuff is just the the way people are getting their contact with text just isn't the same. And the, well, no one's yeah. gonna go to a Twitter if you you know you see a story on Twitter. You click on the link and you go, and if you have to scroll too long, like you do the initial mm-hmm. scroll and you're like, I don't know, do I want to invest in this, you know, but.
1: But it's almost always worth it if you do. I mean, I found that uh, the writing that I've seen right now, I've been surprised that was good. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just, there's not the, I think the
0: challenge is there's not the financial support for it now. Sure. With, sure. I mean, speaking of subscription, so you're subscribe right. to something good, people. Mm-hmm. Maybe that should be the encouragement. Subscribe yeah. to. Yeah. Something good. Support good writing. Yeah. I don't. Know, I should probably not get us off topic, more. That's right. We can that's get right. talking some Twain, huh? We
2: that's have true. an hour, don't we, guys? We got plenty of time. We got as long as
0: we much. want, Caleb mm-hmm. Keith will just remind us that an hour is ideal. <laughs> so. <laughs>
1: well, I think that's. I, this is a good free for all topic because this this is part of Twain's world, right? Long oh, form, yeah. and then getting into um, writing books and how does one become an author? Right? I mean, there, there's a whole lot of things and of course we could talk hours and hours and hours you could talk hours and hours and hours on twain um so we'll we'll have to we'll have to narrow it down sometime but we'll see it'll be fun to see where it goes so we'll be back with our main topic Back for our main topic, and we're uh, very happy to uh, welcome back um, Dr. Martin Woldenauer again. We've had we had him on maybe last year, and we started off with a Twain quote because we were talking about travel, and you can talk about that in a little bit. And I think I remember after getting off, I said, "What what should we do next?" And some, of, either I or you, probably you said Twain. Mm-hmm. So we've had it on our chalkboard for a while, and uh, finally got around to getting through some other ideas that were ahead of in the uh, the queue. And uh, we're very happy to have you talk about Mark Twain. And so maybe we can just start off and you go wherever you want. Um, but maybe just start off, just give a brief biographical sketch of, of Twain and, uh, and then we'll
2: just take the conversation where it goes. Sure. Well, thank you for having me again, guys. It's fun to be on a, a podcast like this with To uh, professional guys leading the way, Uh, (laughs) or or us, (laughs) uh, or or Wade and Mike. If we don't have the professional, you're not paid for this. So I guess I should not that I know of. Maybe Peter better pocketed a bunch of money, but I take back the professional. (laughs) But I I just got something on my email about 25 minutes ago, just before I walked over here to your studio. It came from a financial company. You were talking about your interests in economics, business Mm -hmm. weekly, and so forth. And, and they're talking about October being a speculative month in the stock market. October is oh, really? a bouncing month. Gambling on the and, next year, probably. Not. Yeah, they, they describe the volatility of, of uh, this particular month, <laughs> October. And, and here's what they included at the end of their newsletter. It's a Mark Twain quote. And Mark Twain said, October, this is one of the peculiarly dangerous months to speculate in Spock in stocks. Other months are November, December, January, February, March, April, May, June, (laughs) July, August, and September. And that's their quote. Of the there you week go. From Mark so, Twain. <laughs> so ignore ignore the whole email is yeah. what they're saying. Yeah, that's funny. So, <laughs> so uh, to the audience, uh, mm-hmm. beware, buyer beware. That's right, investor beware. But
1: that's that's a good that kind of sums up a little bit of Twain. Just a oh, little bit of starting off serious and then just a little bit of a jab there, is, but not too vicious. His
2: wry humor and guys, you interrupt me as you wish because I can talk about Twain not only all day but but all week. As I look <laughs> back on. You mentioned I'm in the twilight of my career. This is my 47th year of teaching in the elementary school, high school, college level. I've probably taught Twain every single one of those years, every single one of those semesters, and, uh, and I'll miss him. But one time I was able to go to Viterbo College in La Crosse, Viterbo University maybe it's called now, and I saw Hal Holbrook live portraying Mark Twain. Huh. He wore the, the white serge suit and he smoked a cigar on the stage and he adopted Twain Twain's twang. Hmm. Twain had a bit of a twang and, and for about two hours Hal Holbrook was Mark Twain and that's so memorable for me. It was probably 20 years or more ago Hal Holbrook is probably dead by now or maybe he's still alive but he was a younger character actor mm-hmm. and w- what a what a pleasure that was to see Mark Twain live. Mark Twain was born in 1835 and died in 1910. But I would call him the first American writer. He, he Americanized the literature. Previous authors like Washington Irving, Nathaniel Hawthorne, even Poe and Melville to a degree were taking their inspiration from Europe. It was the legends and lore of other countries that Influenced them. But Twain, born in Missouri, little town of Hannibal on the Mississippi River, and, and a traveler all his life. We used him the last time I did a podcast when we talked about his quote, travel is fatal to prejudice. Twain came up with over 200 Americanized sayings. In fact, barbed wire is one that comes to mind. He, <laughs> Twain was the first to <laughs> talk about barbed wire. And lots of little terms like rapscallion and scallywags and things like that were Twainisms, actually. He wasn't very educated officially. He stopped at age 11 when his father died. But here's where it goes back to what we were talking in the free-for-all. He worked for his brother Orion, 11 years his senior, in the local town newspaper. So little Samuel Clemens, which was his real name, of course, Samuel Langhorne Clemens, was serving as an office boy, an errand boy, in a newspaper office, setting up type. And for about six years, seven years, until he was 18 and ran away from home, he was learning how to write, learning how to spell, learning language and structure. Really great on-the-job experience. And then he parted ways with his brother, Orion, I'm going to tell some stories that Twain tells. I think that's something the audience might like. He, he says his older brother went away from Hannibal for a, a while, a week or two, and, and he left young 17-year-old Sam in charge of the newspaper, and he said, don't write anything that will get you in trouble. So Sam promptly wrote an editorial about the mayor of the city of Hannibal, suggesting that he should wade out into the Mississippi River and not come back. <laughs> and and when Twain got back, the mayor was at his office. I'm talking about Orion, his brother. The mayor was at his office saying, get rid of that kid. I don't want him working here anymore. So Sam Clemens moved on as age 18 to his wayfaring years, moving eastward, Philadelphia, New York, Boston. We don't know too much about his years between 18 and 21 except that he was growing up and he was working for newspapers, periodicals, magazines, wherever he could find employment. And then the Civil War happened and Sam joined the Confederacy. He was a Missouri boy, which would be considered a borderline state. His brother Orion worked for the North and supported Abraham Lincoln politically, personally. And the two boys parted ways. But Sam only spent about three weeks in the Confederate Army before he decided to go AWOL, absent, without leave. And uh, he said a guy could get hurt working at this trade. <laughs> 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 and and uh, that's kind of his sense of humor. Once again, that wry, that wry smile, that inner speech that uh, is humorous. So from there, he decided to go to South America and, and raise coffee beans. He had heard about cacao, chocolate, and coffee, and Brazil would be a great place to do that. So he took a riverboat down the Mississippi River, a big old paddle wheeler with the steam-powered engines and, and the smokestacks, three stories high. And he got to New Orleans and decided, I don't want to go to South America. I want to be a riverboat pilot. So, from about 1855 to 1860, he served as a riverboat cub apprentice and then a riverboat pilot. I have a book that suggests he steered and maneuvered about 13 steamships up and down the Mississippi River, hmm. earned more money than the President of the United States, hmm. smoked a corn, pob, corn cob pipe, had red hair and flaming red mustache, wore a blue captain's jacket with brass buttons entertained the ladies and men that he would meet guys i'm i'm rolling here i like it it's good it's good keep going no uh, any old time but but then he, he came to the civil war which broke out in 1861 and this is how he describes it he was up on the texas deck the top deck and he was steering the steamship up the mississippi river and he said a cannonball flew over the the bow of the boat he didn't think anything of it he just kept on going another cannonball a little bit closer this time he slowed up the third cannonball as Twain describes it crashed through the door and rolled to a stop at his feet and he figured he better heave ho and pull the pull the ship over to the shore that was the end of riverboat traffic for four years Mm -hmm. Hmm. the Civil War would have put cannonballs right through the sides of, of any passenger ship or any cargo ship So uh, what to do now? It's 1865 and he doesn't have employment. He hooked up with his long estranged brother, Orion. That's just like the constellation, O-R-I-O-N, Orion. And Orion had received a political post from the President of the United States. That would be Abraham Lincoln, folks. And it was to go out to Nevada, which was a territory, and be sort of the secretary to the governor So Orion said to his younger brother, Sam, come on along, and we'll go out to Nevada. So they took off from St. Louis, heading west, as many people did during those days, westward ho and go west, young man, and all of that uh, by stagecoach and horses, watching buffalo and fighting Indians from time to time. And they got to Carson City, Nevada. And Sam said, my official title was the secretary to the secretary to the governor of the territory of Nevada. It sounded auspicious, but it didn't pay a dime. <laughs> I
1: wonder. I wonder if the um, the sitcom The Office with Dwight. I was thinking with the same Dwight, thing. That was a Twainism. So I don't know if you know The Office. I don't know The Office. So there is the regional manager, and then
2: oh, so there underling.
1: Is, yeah, and the underling says. I'm the assistant regional manager, and he says, no, you're the assistant to the regional <laughs> manager. Anyway, I wonder yeah. if, they, if the author yeah. knew that, the writers knew that, yeah.
2: Well, that's uh, <laughs> uh, ostensibly how he got out to Carson City, Nevada, and working for his brother, but really no income. So th- there's where he, he tried a number of trades, if If you want me to keep going in this Go ahead. style. No, yeah. this is good, yeah, this is uh, good. I'll keep on going, but <laughs> he, he tried... Uh, Mining because out in the Sierra Nevada mountains, silver, gold, copper, iron, all kinds of metals could be mined. But is he
0: is he writing during this time at all? No, no,
2: no. This leads up to it. Good question, though, because he's our most famous American author. Why? Why in the world isn't he writing? But and it's he's over 30. But no, he tried mining and and the pickaxe and the shovel and the the buckets and the wheelbarrows and he did that a few, a few weeks didn't find any claim for gold or silver and his hands were blistered and bleeding so he said this just isn't for me he quit and the next thing he tried was lumbering being a timberman because virgin forests all around let's see that would be Reno I think mm-hmm. Reno, Nevada and Carson City, Virginia City California, Nevada borderline lots of timber and he went out into the forest and chopped down some trees and was going to sell those big logs. But accidentally started the woods on fire <laughs> with the with careless. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. He almost burned down the whole Reno, Nevada area. So he said, this just isn't for me. And he quit being a lumberman. The next thing was he wrote some stories. This would be about 18 66 now just the civil war is over and the first story he wrote which is famous i'll I'll list the name celebrated jumping frog of calaveras county it was about a jumping frog contest and a stranger who purchased a frog and said i'll bet that my frog can jump farther than your frog can jump while his back was turned they filled the frog up with some buckshot so he was a real lead belly Mm. And even though he said, "Jump, Daniel! Jump, Daniel!" the frog couldn't budge, and eventually belched out a bunch of bucks, buckshot. Well, that story sounds silly and inane, but in eighteen sixty-six, that was that was a marvelous thing for the country to read, because they had just been through the Civil War, and they'd watched their fathers and their sons be buried, and they needed some laughter and some frivolity in a jumping frog contest with a frog filled up with buckshot was just what the country uh. needed. And he signed his name Mark Twain for the first time in 1866. Mark Twain comes from his riverboat days. Do either of you know what Mark Twain means? No, I was actually 12, just going to ask why he picked uh, that. Twelve feet of something, something. Mike, you are right. Uh, it means two fathoms. Mark Twain is two. It's what the leadsman would call out on the front of the bow of the boat as he threw out a weighted line, and he'd pull it up. And if it was 12 feet deep, the big paddle wheel would be able to go unhindered Hmm. over the sandbars and through the mud. So Mark Twain was a welcome call for the captain to hear. Anything less than that, and he's going to get stuck, and more than that is good. So that's how he got the name, Mark Twain. I never knew that. Yeah. Well, happy to share. Yeah. So from there, his career uh, moved quickly forward in reporting. He happened to go have a job with the San Francisco newspaper, and it sent him out to the Sandwich Islands. Sandwich Islands are today known as Hawaii. He was one of the first white men to, to visit those chain of islands. And while he was there, a ship burned in the harbor completely engulfed in flames and he wrote about it so not only is he now known across the country as the author of funny stories he's now also known as the author of a very good reporting of a catastrophe and
1: and that would be a big deal like we i don't think we always equate that author was such a great journalist because they reported on this event i think we we don't really see them as celebrities we see our people on tv as celebrities but not the authors but that mark twain was a one of the most famous americans eventually and partly because of this right
2: yeah and i'll i'll speed up the second part of my bio no, you go asked ahead. me 15 minutes ago to give you a short no biography, you keep going
1: and if we have to we have, we we may we may have you on back to back here we could talk <laughs> about twain we'll do a bio episode <laughs> and then something you know,
2: else so just go ahead it's one of my loves i i have in my office a picture of of what I consider the three greatest authors in American literature. And my wife put a collage together and right in the center is Mark Twain. And off to the left on the other side is Robert Frost who might be the greatest poet of the 20th century. And on the other side is Papa Hemingway who's certainly a great prose writer in the 20th century. Twain of course comes from the 19th century. So those three are pictured in my office. Good Michigan connections with Hemingway he did he did live in northern michigan for yeah. well and southern petoskey is in the southern part yeah. lower peninsula yeah but he also uh spent time Escanaba area manistique uh, hunting and fishing but that's Hemingway. let's do hemingway another you know, there time. so love to talk about yeah,
1: absolutely so no this is good let's keep rolling on the history mm. so he's in he's in hawaii and that's where he's
2: Makes a name for himself. In journalism, okay. And then another skill he had is how he got back to New York. He lectured his way across the United States. People coming to an auditorium, paying a quarter or 50 cents to hear this guy talk Which about was a pretty
0: things. common thing at the time that, you know, lecture halls being a, a, an important community a, gathering places is how...
2: It was entertainment. Yeah. he didn't have movie theaters and, and all that. So mm-hmm. he lectured his way back to New York, and then he procured... The real assignment he was looking for, and that was eighteen sixty nine now uh, his first opportunity to travel by boat to Europe and that had not existed at all during the Civil War again, sitting duck targets for people on the other side so uh, he he boarded a tourist ship born for bound for Greece Italy. Northern Africa, the Holy Land, Palestine, Turkey. And he was to be the correspondent on board this early cruise ship. It's it's what it was, steamship, so Mm. it was able to to fight the wind and not be a sailing vessel. His roommate on that several months-long trip, talk about cruise ships now for five days, this was Mm. for months, was a guy by the name of Charles Langdon. Charles Langdon was his roommate, and in 1869, Twain would have been in his early 30s, 34. He saw a picture of Charles Langdon's sister on his bureau in the stateroom that they shared, and he said, "Who's who's that girl? He said, my sister, Olivia Langdon. Twain said to Charles, is she married? No. Is she available? Well, you can write to her. (laughs) And that began a 200-letter correspondence between Mark Twain and Olivia Langdon, which resulted in their marriage. 36 years of marriage, four children, three of whom survived to adulthood. One died early. And that's how he met his wife. So to the younger audience listening, if you have a roommate, ask about their siblings. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and write a letter. Right write here. a letter. You yeah. may find yourself married. <clears throat> and there's a, a lot I could tell you about that relationship, too. But let's keep moving ahead <laughs> to, to his writing career. So
0: Well, and maybe just a little bit. Um, sure. You had mentioned earlier he's going to become kind of the first Amer- truly American writer. And he's going to have this experience in Europe. So he's going to Europe. And um from what I know of Twain, uh he's gonna what is it, um something in a King in a King Arthur's court,
2: uh Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court.
0: Um it, there and elsewhere he'll kind of have criticisms of kind of Europe and um how it's its hierarchy and it, it's some of its customs and, and things. Um what is his is this largely going to come from his travel experiences with it that he's going to if i'm not mistaken he he's he really likes the english people um but uh he his time in europe i take it is is important because he experiences europe but it also leads him to consider what he likes about america
2: or well he he was a fantastic <coughs> reporter interviewer he he met the king of italy he he talked with magistrates and and the monarchies throughout throughout the Mediterranean world. So he was granted special status. And that was probably the
0: first time the King of Italy had worked with a riverboat or spoke with a riverboat captain.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. The American South. And and it was uh, his prestige and his reputation's growing all the while. So I, I'm sure. So and he went back to live in Italy too. He lived in Florence, guys. Uh, we've all been to Florence, Firenze, the great city Everybody of. Nobody but me. You, you haven't been there. I have oh. only been in Northern Europe. Oh, I I assumed you'd disappointed. Shucks. Me. Oh,
0: I've been in Southern Europe. Only only place in Southern Europe I've been is Croatia. I was mistaken. I did go to Croatia. quite a bit
2: different from Florence. Yeah, <laughs> <the laughs> epicenter of the Renaissance. Yeah. But he lived there for several years with his wife. In fact, she died in Florence. Oh. Uh, I can get to that later if you want. But but his writing career now spawns with this with this trip to Europe, the Mediterranean cruise, because. As he collected these stories and tidbits from the tourists, he called them the innocents. The innocents, that's a noun, not an adjective. And his book became known as The Innocents Abroad, uh, describing those tourists and that that travel experience that he'd had. And that, that was his first published book in 1869 about that voyage to Europe. Two years later, he wrote another book called Roughing It, and that was about the stagecoach journey with his brother Orion from St. Louis out to Carson City. In each of these books, I think his, as I look at Twain's 35 books or so, his sense of humor develops as he writes. It gets better and better and better. And and then it wanes and gets worse and worse in his later years. I'll tell you why and and how his last few books his only surviving daughter suppressed and did not want people to know her father as a bitter, embittered, angry old man.
0: Kind of like Luther.
2: Luther was never a bitter, <laughs> angry old man. At the end, he kind of is. I mean, he was in pain.
0: He, yeah, he, but he having
2: a hard time Yeah, uh, His
0: 1540s, there's some pretty rough stuff in there. Well, that's a, that's a stretch, Wade. <laughs> yeah, because everyone in their uh, end of life writes on the Jews and their lies. <laughs> um, well,
1: here's another similarity between Twain and and Luther. You, you, we. I don't know if it'll be this episode. Maybe we'll have to have you back, but um, maybe to. Um, Take those who have demonized Twain because of some of the things he said racially we will say, let's have more context. And that would be true of Luther as well. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, that would be a connection.
2: And I know what you're talking about there, and that's probably another topic for another day. (laughs) So he writes the innocents
0: abroad, though, and and his take on who are the innocents and why are they innocent, I guess.
2: Well, they were the first (laughs) tourists to travel after the Civil War. The Civil War just tore apart the whole world, not just America, and... These were the first who were allowed to go out on a boat and travel and experience things. So he called them the innocents. In the sense of then, inexperienced, yeah, naive. Yeah, that, that would be a synonym, yeah. They're innocent of having traveled and seeing the world. It goes back to that quote, travel is mm-hmm. fatal to prejudice that yeah. I love to,
0: to What uh As far as his experience of Europe, as, w- as far as the things he sees there that he will find fault with or poke fun at, what are some of the main things that stand out to him as problematic or at least worth some teasing about Europe?
2: Catholic Church. He, he takes the Pope to task and makes fun of the hierarchy and the the penance, and go, he goes after the... In, in Connecticut, Yankee and King Arthur score, too, and, and that's one of the things. I think he also was indignant about the monarchy... Rule coming from a democratic country and having the right to travel and be free. And and he saw despots. And he was also, he got to the Holy Land, he saw Israel. And he, well, I'm going to talk about his religion. That's going to come up later. Uh, Was he religious? Was he churched? His wife Olivia certainly was religious and did go to church. He disdained the privilege, and she would at times coerce him into going to church. But
0: and when they went, what kind of church was that?
2: I, I you knew you were going to ask me that, Wade, and I, for, I forgot to. It's look not it. Catholic, I take it. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, she, she was I'm kind. Gonna, of, she was kind of a
1: um, higher class lady, probably some sort of. Presbyterian. I, I think it was Presbyterian.
2: East Coast, probably yeah. of the of
1: the of the upper crust. Is that yes. correct? Yes. Okay, yeah, she right. was
2: well read, educated. One of the reasons he fell in love with her. She could handle her pen in writing letters to him, and and yeah, I think Presbyterian is it. But I, the, the audience, don't quote. So this me.
0: wasn't Southern Bible. No, 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 no,
2: no. She's from New York, upstate, okay. upstate okay. New York, and they were wealthy. And when he visited her in person, I'm I'm backtracking to that courtship phase. When he visited her in person, he stayed for about a week, a week and a half at their family estate, three stories high with a wall around it and, and uh, outbuildings. And then he had to leave to go back home, but he didn't want to leave. He wanted to get to know her better and woo her parents. So he pretended to fall off a wagon and sprain his ankle. And that allowed him to stay longer at their estate. And before long, he had asked for her hand. But, uh, yeah, that's the first book. The second one is Roughing It, which describes that journey from St. Louis out to Carson City, Nevada. A book I've taught excerpts to my students through the years. And then uh, 1876 comes the big one, uh, Tom Sawyer, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, which probably captures two bona fide American heroic boys better than any other author. I think Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn are the epitome of American adolescence in the 1800s. And their statue, which still resides in Hannibal, Is probably the most famous literary statue that I could think of. Hmm. Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, there they are. And, of course, they're based on his own life. He he is Tom Sawyer, and Huck Finn is Tom Blankenship, who was the son of the town drunk in Hannibal, for real. There really was a Tom Blankenship who becomes Huck Finn, and Samuel Langhorne Clemens becomes Tom Sawyer. Those those are the two who cause all the hijinks, skip school, attack Sunday school parties, go swimming in the lake, explore the caves, all of the things that Tom Sawyer show off for the girls.
0: So maybe two things then that would be of interest and you, you said we'd be getting to them and maybe they'd come up well here is you talk about Twain as being, you know, kind of the American author. He kinda of gets things going. Um and I think, you know, that's you see that in so many fields that America for a long time is imitating Europe and not kind of doing its own thing, and so this will be an important development. But it's interesting. At the time he's writing, we've had the Civil War, um, and if he's going to capture America, two things that would stand out would be religion and race. Um, You know, those are just two things you can't study American history and not get into. I mean, America is uh, a... Religious country in a very unique way in the world, I would say still today. Um, America does religion in a very unique way um, in the world. And then obviously race is, is something that's uh, part of our past and still something in the news today. Maybe if we could take those two and maybe take first religion. The, the Twain quote that always comes to mind to me with religion is, he said something along the line supposedly, It's not the parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me, but the parts that I do understand. um, And then there's one for preaching. A true
2: skeptic, a true skeptic. Yeah,
0: and there's one for preaching that always would come to mind. Something like uh, no one was saved after 20 minutes in a sermon or something like that that uh, always reminded me to to try to keep it succinct. But what is his, um, we've talked about his relationship with his wife with religion, but what is his experience? Does he have um, a religious upbringing? Okay. Uh, anything along those lines. I'll,
2: I'll go on both of those topics, Wade. Happy to do it. Uh, and maybe I should explain to the audience, Mark Twain was part of my dissertation study. As I looked at manuscripts of authors' early writings, I have facsimiles of Twain's writing, his early drafts of Huckleberry Finn and other things, and I've, I've studied those. So, I've had a little look into the inside creating process of Mark Twain. But to the religion, I'll give you another quote in Tom Sawyer. He says he, he went to church, his aunt forced him, and he said he listened for a while, watched a pinch bug crawl around on the floor, and, and then he said uh, then they, they passed a collection plate, and he said he, he didn't put anything in. He said the sermon was free, and it was worth it. and the sermon was free and and it was very well worth it so yeah he had a a disdain for organized religion i think that his wife chafed against and he would occasionally go to church he lived in hartford connecticut he lived in illyria new york he lived uh, abroad and church wasn't part of of his every there's one dissertation out there and I I can't remember the name of the author but I I know I studied it which claims Twain was a closet Christian it, that he really did have a faith life and he he believed in the dogma of of a Christian church but I can't support that and certainly his later writings I'll I'll quote too the mysterious stranger and the man that corrupted Hadleyburg are dastardly attacks on religion and hypocrisy, people of the church, and how foolish. He, he referred to the human race as the whole damned human race. That's how Twain looked at it. And maybe backing up still further, the reason he felt so uh, excommunicated from church is is this, is this little litany I'm going to read from some notes. His sister, Margaret, died when he was four years old. His brother, Benjamin, died when Sam was six years old. His father, John, died when Sam was 11 years old. His brother, Henry, died when Sam was 22 years old. That was particularly horrible. He died on a steamship explosion. Hmm. The boilers blew up, and and, uh, Sam had gotten his brother a job on that steamship, so he felt personally responsible. His son Langdon dies at one and a half years old, and he feels very responsible for that death. He took his son on a horse and buggy ride, and it was a cold day, and he covered his son up with a fur wrap, one and a half year old now, and, and went for a horse and buggy ride. And he forgot that his son was in the back seat before he realized that the fur coat had fallen away from the little baby, and he was just about frozen to death and he died a few days later and sam continually blamed himself for having taken his son out on that horse and buggy ride and and he died i'm not done with the deaths in his life his mother jane died when she was 88 his daughter Susie had three daughters Susie died at 24 years of age of meningitis orion his older brother died at 72, so kind of a normal phenomenon to have your older brother die, but still affecting him. Uh, A Negro butler that they had in Hartford, George, died in 1898, a family member as Twain called him. His wife died in Florence, 1904. His sister died in 1904, and then really the culmination to his embittered feeling about God would be his favorite daughter, Jean, died on Christmas Eve. 1909, a seizure in the bathtub, and uh, that just broke his heart. He himself died April 21, 1910, at the age of 74. But all of those deaths led him to wear only white. He wore only a white suit, white shirt, white white top coat, and white trousers, white shoes, because he said, I'm tired of wearing black at funerals. Hmm. And he had 12 of those suits made. I visited the museum in Hannibal where one of those suits is still on display. And he was not a very large man. I'm, I'm not a very tall guy, and I was sure I couldn't fit into his, his white suit. So he was a smallish fellow, but he only wore white, only broke that pledge one time at his daughter's wedding when he wore his doctoral gown. Now, Twain did not have a Ph.D., and he was not a doctor of anything, but he had been awarded numerous honorary degrees, and at one juncture they gave him a, a gown, doctoral gown, so he wore that for her wedding, but that's the only time huh. he ever wore huh. a dark-colored piece of clothing after all of these deaths that I just mentioned. So, Wade, bring me back here. It was... Uh, so
0: with that... so his experience with religion so there's a an uh an anger maybe towards god in general does in his childhood is is he have any exposure to religion that that fuels any of this or or is he really unchurched until he meets his
2: wife no sunday school and church his his mother made him go and that that reflects in tom sawyer and huck finn how the boys would skip out of church or Go swimming instead of Sunday school, or they'd attack Sunday school picnics as though they were pirates swooping in on the kids to make them cry. Yeah, he had church. He was churched as a boy, but I'm pretty sure it faded out of his existence as a as a man.
0: And then the the second part would be kind of Twain and race, and I think it you know it's interesting whenever that comes up because. There's, we, we live in an age that's especially gifted at anachronism and uh, reading our values or our ways of speaking uh, into the past and we can do that with all sorts of ages of history and one of the things that will inevitably come up for instance is you'll hear about schools where they're not going to read Huck Finn because of um, what now would be considered a racial slur. But as um, I mean, we even think of with the Bible, you read the Old Testament and you go, well, why did God permit that or allow that? And you go, well, because he was dealing with ancient Near Eastern people Mm -hmm. who were known to be extremely brutal and um, were in cultures that had plenty of rough edges. And so race is something that that Twain um, cognizantly is going to take on and discuss, Um, but he's going to have to do it for his audience in, in ways that they can express. and. Um, if you can do that well, you have to do it with a, a realism um, that people of that time would have recognized. And so I think um, Huck Finn especially provides a interesting kind of test case or um, uh, you know case study of how we can read back into those ages and sometimes miss what the author was doing because we'll latch on to um, language or terms or approaches that maybe are not as I mean, it's not how we would handle them, or write the right It's not the language we would use today, but maybe a little bit on uh, Twain is um, and race because race and religion just caught up in the American persona.
2: Sure, I'll I'll be happy to tackle that one. And as a prelude to that, I would say we English professors would put three American novels at the top of a list of all time, and they would be. The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, Moby Dick by Herman Melville, and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. Those triumvirate of books would be top-ranked. Others You Could Fall in Line, Great Gatsby, Sun Also Rises, The Old Man in the Sea, The Red Badge of Courage. I'm just listing other. Grapes of Wrath by Steinbeck, Sound and the Fury by Faulkner. But getting back to Huckleberry Finn, Wade, and and, uh, I've got a pretty good insight on this because I studied the manuscripts of Huckleberry Finn. I was fortunate to be able to obtain photocopies of Twain's own longhand handwriting. He wrote on yellow legal pads, and uh, as I studied it, I got to be pretty familiar with his handwriting. And he copiously and carefully corrected dialects and accents. At one point he writes the word ain't, A-I-N apostrophe T, crosses it off and writes above it haint, H-A-I-N apostrophe T. So even the almost unaspirated H -hmm. is something he picks up on. In the preface to *Huckleberry Finn*, he says these are nine different kinds of dialects, and I'm using the backwoods Arkansas dialect and the and the Missouri dialect. And notoriously
1: so hard to a put in onto paper, transliterate, I don't know how you would say that, but then also
2: to get it right, capture yeah. the, right. the right. ear when sound.
0: Your, when your colleague Rebecca was on, she was talking about the difficulty of dialect and how. Well,
2: and, and here's another one. Besides ain't and haint, and and he does this. He. He does it authentically. He changes the ain't and the haint depending on who's talking. And he he goes back over that careful manuscript to make sure it's authentic. Mm -hmm. Another one is cigar, a big old Cuban cigar that you'd smoke. He doesn't say Cuban. I said Cuban. And in some places he'll write cigar, S-E-E-G-A-R, cigar. That's my grandpa said it. Cigar, yeah, give me a cigar. Mm-hmm. In other places, C I G A R, the way it's spelled. And, and another, another instance, uh, his wife Olivia, who, whom he called Livy, uh, was his proofreader, sort of quasi editor, and he wrote into the manuscript of Huck Finn, carpet bag. She crossed it off and wrote above, above it, luggage, because in the 1870s and 80s, the word "carpet bag would have brought fire to the eyes and the belly of all Southerners, mm-hmm. since carpetbaggers were northern people who mm-hmm. went to the south to plunder and plague them with the remnants of the Civil War. So carpet bag, Livy, expunges from the text. We're not going to talk about carpet bag. On the other hand, he uses the N-word 66 times in the book Huckleberry Finn, never expunged, never edited, never changed, which tells me the inference is he's working so carefully to get the right words in the right order with the right pronunciation, and that's a word he uses very casually, which, as you said, Wade, is indicative of the times. Huckleberry Finn is set in the 1840s prior to the Civil War. It's written in the 1880s. 1884 publishing date but it's set 50 years earlier and that's when the n-word was commonly used among people of color and among caucasian people it, it was just the term so i think he gets an unfair rap on calling him a bigot or a racist uh he's he's also got plenty of anecdotal evidence of how he befriended within his own family within his own household uh servants and people who worked for him. He, he paid for college educations anonymously for some African-American people who wanted to go to college. Twain put out the money and said, here, you can go. And one of the misinterpreted lines from Huckleberry Finn is Huck himself, as he's contemplating whether to turn Jim, his runaway slave friend, turn him in for a reward, Huckleberry Finn says, all right then, I'll go to hell. Mm -hmm. And he tears up the message which would have revealed Jim's whereabouts. And people who are, I'll say, ignorantly critical of Huckleberry Finn say, well, there you go. you got a kid who's saying he wants to go to hell. That's probably the most redeeming moment in the book because Huck is saying, I I treasure freedom and, and my friend more than I do the reward money.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean that is a, it's a powerful scene and I think there's a lot of connections there with Mike and I were just talking about Christian freedom and you know that you're willing to venture all for your neighbor uh, which is what Huck is doing what um, I guess just a couple things as we, so we don't go too long uh, and we can probably pick up with another episode at some point but uh, if someone were going to start with Twain so there's two questions here if someone were going to start with Twain where would you encourage them to start and then if you had to pick a favorite or a couple favorite Mark Twain works, what uh, what would come to mind for you?
2: Sure. Well, depending on the audience level, of course, uh, I, I mentioned earlier, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is the epoch of his works. It's it's the most mature of his works. It's the most accused and bandied of, of all of his works. So if, if you have the sophistication to read that, uh, do it. Tom Sawyer is more of a high school book about childhood pranks and hijinks. Huck Finn is the more adult book about liberty and freedom and human conscience maturation. Uh, An easy book for kids would be The Prince and the Pauper, which I said he wrote for his three daughters. And some short stories, certainly The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County gives you that early hint of his humor that later comes out. I would avoid the... Mysterious Stranger, or The Man That Corrupted Hadleyburg, or Letters from the Earth, which, no um, oh, wait a minute, that's C.S. Lewis. <laughs> 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 Never mind. Never mind. We just read C.S. Lewis recently, too. Uh, anyway, Twain talks about the devil as a real figure and polluting people, and that's why I was thinking Letters from the Earth. But, uh, Wade, my favorite, I've taught Huck Finn so many times that it it seems like my favorite, but... And, and every time you teach a classic, you find new things when you teach it again and again. That's, of course, true of you theologians, too, sections of Scripture. Sure. You teach or preach on, again, you find nuances and new things and new uh, aspects. So, yeah, any, any Twain is good Twain. <laughs> and maybe a
1: bi- you know, not to interrupt, but a biography of Wayne. Do you have a favorite uh, Twain, I should say, uh, favorite well, bio?
2: Yeah, there's there's many biographies. I don't want to sound like I'm bragging about this, but I probably have 50 books about Mark Twain in my personal library. And his authorized autobiography is by Albert Bigelow Payne. It was a young man, a newspaper man, who visited Twain in his later years, and Twain authorized him to write Twain's life story. It's a three-volume work, and it's authentically from Twain through Payne, it's Albert Bigelow Payne, P A I N E. The audience wants to seek out that autobiographical book. Then there's lots of biographical books from different aspects about his riverboat days, his religiosity, his travels, uh, his fatherhood. He loved his children. Uh, and, and I'm going to have a hard time parting with those books as I retire and move my office into the diminished future of my home <laughs> because I have about 4,000 books right now in my office here at the college and there's no way my wife will tolerate 4,000 <laughs> books back at my house so what um yard sale
0: hmm. you mentioned uh him becoming a little bit embittered at the end of his life and maybe just briefly what is he bitter about just everything life in general and then maybe finally uh just a question I'll have on, on Twain in America but just if you could briefly, what what is he so embittered about at the end of his life that you know his, even his daughter sees the need to kind of suppress his writing? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, his surviving daughter Clara married a Russian pianist and has a unpronounceable last name. But she she said, "I'm not going to let these things be published." Her father had died because they're so bitter. I'd say hypocrisy Wade would be the biggest thing he he hated hypocrites he himself was what you see is what you get and he said I've never I've never worked a day in my life Uh, every every single day that I live I've enjoyed and and written things about my life but he, he didn't like hypocrites and that that bothered him to the point of pain I think in his later years plus all those deaths I mentioned when you consider that well the notes are still in front of me there's probably 15 names of yeah. people very close to him who died in some cases unexpectedly or by accident his own son died by his his carelessness uh, you either turn to the lord or you turn away from the lord and i think he turned away from the lord
0: and then maybe as a final point i mean i think twain has influenced america in a lot of ways i mean whether it be his the way his humor has influenced american humor and I mean, you watch you watch comedy still today, and there's there's you see Twain in it. You know the in our um, kind of our love for maybe sarcasm, and I don't know. That's something often when you travel uh, that doesn't translate as well as kind of our American sense of sarcasm or or even irony. But uh, what would you say as far as his big, and maybe it's just his writing style, or that he had he brings a particularly American voice to American literature, but. What would you say is his, his biggest um, imprint he's left upon America as a nation, country, society, however, wherever you want to go with it?
2: Yeah, I can give you an answer on that. His only work of nonfiction, he wrote fiction. His only work of nonfiction was Life on the Mississippi, which was a description of riverboat traffic in the 1860s. 1850s I should say because in 1861 the riverboat traffic ceased but but that is authentic he's authentic American he he describes the cries of the riverboat captains the people on shore who are hailing the boat the way they unloaded the wood and loaded the wood for the boilers to produce steam the way that he memorized the Mississippi River its currents its sandbars its loggerheads uh, He's authentic, and that book, they say, much like Moby Dick, Moby Dick captures whaling, the industry of whaling, better than any other book. Although it's a book of fiction, it's certainly based on Melville's own experience as a sailor and a whaler. Uh, Life on the Mississippi is is something we we can't get anywhere else. Uh, We can't find a Burns special TV (laughs) broadcast about the riverboat traffic unless you go through Mark Twain. So authentic Americanism, I'd say, and and that differs from the European models or copies.
0: uh It would be interesting to get his take on Americanism today. He probably would see some hypocrisy that that might bother him. Uh the uh I mean I think we've got a couple episodes, ideas that came out of this mm-hmm. to keep us from going too long, but uh you answered everything I had down here and answered yeah. it well, so I'm impressed. The, uh, I guess, otherwise, Mike, I'll let you wrap it up for us, or I'll keep talking.
1: Sure. I think, uh, you know, as we go forward uh, as listeners here, listening to a great Dr. Moldenauer here and uh, interested in literature, but really the human spirit and the human condition and the struggles that we have, um, and you see the bitterness in perhaps Mark Twain and other people that you'd be so thankful that we have, uh, salvation in christ and we have freedom and so that our life is doesn't have to end up in that bitterness
2: but we can go forward and well thanks guys and let the bird fly every evening when the sun goes down
1: get my party and i begin to cry i don't care what the people i think i'm not drunk i'm just a drink i set up i'm not around i up Another round, I'll set up Another round, one more round Won't get me down